This hearing will come to order. Let me welcome you to the fifth hearing for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific, and International Cybersecurity Policy in the 115th Congress. Uh, thanks to my colleague, Senator Markey, for working with us uh, on what I think has been a very good series of hearings this Congress. It's the fourth hearing this year in the subcommittee that is specifically dedicated to building out various aspects of U.S. policy challenges and opportunities in Asia, Asia, from security threats to economic engagement to human rights. Uh, president Trump has just concluded a landmark visit to the region, the longest by a U.S. president in over 25 years. His attendance of the APAC summit in Vietnam and the ASEAN summit in the Philippines, I believe, sends an important, important reassurance signal to nations in the region that the United States remains engaged and willing to lead. These hearings are also informing new legislation that we're working on that I'm leading called the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, or ARIA, which will seek to build out a long-term vision for United States policy to ensure a free and open Indo-Pacific region. I look forward to working with Senator Markey and other colleagues to introduce this legislation very soon. At our first hearing on March 29th, we focused on the growing security challenges in the region, including North Korea, South China Sea, and terrorism in Southeast Asia. We agreed at that hearing that we must strengthen U.S. defense posture and increase security engagement with our allies in the region. At our second hearing on May 24th, we focused on the importance of U.S. economic leadership in Asia. Now, we agreed at that hearing that while the administration and Congress might differ on global trade strategy, we cannot ignore the fundamental fact that it is Asia and Asia will be critical for the U.S. economy to grow and for the American people to prosper through trade opportunities. At our third hearing on July 12th, we focused on projecting U.S. Val values in the region, including the promotion of democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. We agreed that the active promotion of these fundamental values only reinforce American leadership in Asia and reflect our core beliefs as a nation that human rights are universal rights without exception. Today's hearing will consider the U.S. relationship with the People's Republic of China, the region's rising power and our closest near-peer strategic competitor. We will examine Beijing's views of U.S. actions and intentions in the Indo-Pacific and how these perceptions will shape the strategic landscape for the next generation of policymakers in both capitals. We already know that, as once hoped, China's rise, our concern, may be less than peaceful. Economic growth and the emergence of a middle class has not tempered the Communist Party's hegemonic and nationalist impulses, including the recent destabilizing actions in the East and South China Seas continued belligerence toward Taiwan, and the bullying of China's neighbor, South Korea. As President Xi Jinping consolidates power domestically, it is clear that China also increasingly views its increasing economic and military power in the region as a zero-sum game with the United States. I hope our distinguished witnesses today can shed light on a U.S. policy toward China that avoids conflicts, but also meets key U.S. national and security goals of a free and open Indo-Pacific region. I'll turn it over to Senator Markey for his opening comments, and again, thank him for working uh, in this committee to make these hearings a success, so thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you for this very important hearing, and thank you for the tremendous lineup of witnesses which uh, you have gathered here today. Um, the alliance framework in the Asia-Pacific has allowed the United States to benefit from the economic dynamism in the region and safely address the pressing security challenges in the region. For this region, uh, continued American leadership in the region is essential for global peace and security. But to lead in the Asia-Pacific, we must understand China's strategic intentions and their impact on the United States. To do this, we must look back at history. Out of the ashes of World War II, the United States led a broad effort to create a new global system, one that would not only promote U.S. interests but also benefit the entire world, one that would reduce the likelihood of devastating global conflict while helping those around the world prosper. 
and one that would uphold respect for national sovereignty and freedom from coercion. The system's ability to overcome the unique characteristics of the Asia-Pacific has proved its staying power. Longstanding American security alliances have deterred threats and helped establish a balance of power. Through American development programs and institutions like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, the United States helped unleash unprecedented economic growth and stabilize a fragile Asia-Pacific, all the while promoting democracy, human rights, and the rule of law in the region, core values for all people. China particularly benefited tremendously from this system. With a stable security environment and access to global markets, China's economy has grown to $9.5 trillion, a 15-fold increase over the past 30 years, lifting 800 million of its citizens out of poverty. China's rapid development has helped spur closer people-to-people -people relations with the United States. In 2016, there were over 300,000 Chinese students studying in U.S. universities. And we have cooperated for the global good in a number of key areas, including on the successful conclusion of the multilateral deal to restrict Iran's ability to develop nuclear weapons. And as China seeks to play a larger international role, President Xi wants it to construct a fairer global governance system. But while all countries help shape the international system, they, and especially China, should work through existing institutions and in support of the system's key tenets that have benefited countries across the globe. Unfortunately, China is challenging the very underpinnings of the global order that has brought peace and prosperity. First, China has not lived up to its international obligations to help denuclearize the Korean Peninsula. No country has greater leverage than China, which is responsible for approximately 90% of North Korean trade. Oil still flows over the border, which I saw firsthand during my trip to Dandong in the, uh, on the Yalu River in August. China must cut off these shipments to get Pyongyang to return to the negotiating table. It has done so before, including in 2006, and it must do so again. But China is challenging the international system elsewhere as well. It has constructed in violation of international law military bases on artificial islands in disputed areas of the South China Sea. Through economic coercion, Beijing undermined the sovereignty of its smaller neighbors. Countries including South Korea and the Philippines face Southern Chinese retaliation for taking legal and sovereign actions in their own defense. And China's signature Belt and Road Initiative, which aims to position China as the uncontested leading power in Asia, may further coerce its neighbors through loans they can't repay. U.S. companies face the threat of intellectual property theft with media reporting that China has been stealing cutting-edge research as well as sensitive trade secrets from the United States. And that, that includes companies working in the clean energy sector who cannot compete with state-backed firms. So this is a very important uh, hearing. We must ensure that we protect both U.S. economic and security interests as well as the broader international system that has helped provide peace and stability in the Asia Pacific and beyond. And I look forward to exploring those issues with our witnesses today. Again, an incredible panel you have put together. Thank you, Senator Markey, and I agree with the, the incredible and outstanding quality of our witnesses. So thank you very much for your public service, all of you, and uh, thank you for being here today. We're joined as well by Senator Brasso and Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much for being a part of this committee hearing today. 
Uh, we'll now turn to witness testimony. I'll introduce all three witnesses, and then uh, you'll be proceed with your testimony. We'll begin with Mr. with uh, Senator Ambassador uh, Bacchus, uh, and then uh, Dr. Pillsbury and uh, Dr. Allison. Thank you very much. We'll be third. Uh, our witness, our first witness, is the Honorable Max Bacchus, who most recently served as United States Ambassador to the People's Republic of China from 2014 to 2017. Obviously, no stranger to the United States Senate. He served as a senator from Montana for 36 years from 1978 to 2014, including as chairman of the Senate Finance Committee from 2007 until uh, his departure to become ambassador. I welcome Ambassador Bacchus. Thank you very much for your service. We'll also introduce uh, the next two witnesses. Uh, Dr. Michael Pillsbury served as the senior fellow and director of the Center for, the Chinese, Strat for Chinese Strategy at the Hudson Institute. Dr. Pillsbury is a distinguished defense policy advisor, former high-ranking government official, and author of numerous books and reports on China. He served as an assistant uh, undersecretary of defense for policy planning in the Reagan administration and has also served on the staff of four U.S. Senate committees from 1978 to 1984 and from 1986 to 1981. I welcome Dr. Pillsbury. Thank you as well. Uh, our final witness today is Dr. Graham Allison, who serves as the Douglas Dillon Professor of Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. Dr. Allison is a leading analyst of U.S. national security and defense policy. He's probably the one that rejected my application to Harvard. As Assistant Secretary of Defense in the first Clinton administration, Dr. Allison received the Defense Department's highest civilian award for the Defense Medal for uh, the Distinguished Public Service. Dr. Allison has also served as Special Advisor to the Secretary of Defense under President Reagan. Welcome, Dr. Allison. To all three of you, thank you. Uh, Ambassador Bacchus, if you would proceed to testimony. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, it's um, sort of serendipitous to be back here um, in this position. Uh, thank you very much for calling this hearing, Senator Markey, Senator Murphy, Senator Rosso. I served with two of you, did not serve with the other two of you, which is some indication how quickly times change around here. But um, it's an honor to be here. i am um, just got a couple things to say, and I'll summarize my statement. First, I love this job, representing the United States in China. It's the best job I ever had. I loved serving Montana, the United States Senate, Chairman of the Finance Committee, but I gotta tell you, representing the United States in, in China was, um, was, um, was terrific for two reasons. One is the people. Chinese people are so energetic. They're so uh, practical, pragmatic. Um, they're positive. They are, they're competitive. They're, they're almost survivalists. It's just there's such energy there. Um, that, um, frankly, more than we find in the United States. Chinese people believe more in their future uh, than we Americans generally do in ours. Second, it's just the reward of working on this relationship, U.S.-China. Um, I very much believe, it's been said many times before, it'll be said many times in the, in the, in the future, that this is the most important relationship in the world, U.S.-China. It's going to determine so much. Whether we work well together or don't, it's going to affect the quality of lives of our people, our kids and our grandkids, as well as the quality of lives of Chinese people, their kids and their grandkids. In many respects, we're very similar. Chinese leadership's worried about its people. American leadership concerned about our people. We're similar in that respect. But there are major, major differences. One is this. I think we Americans, at, I, get indulged in this concept of exceptionalism. We Americans assume that if we just keep working with other people, other countries, say they're Chinese, they're going to be just like us. They'll be more like us. Just keep working, that's the assumption. 
And I can tell you that's an incorrect assumption. Um, China is China. The United States is the United States. We're very different countries, very different forms of government. We have to recognize that. We think ours is superior. They think theirs is superior. I remember talking to a good number of Chinese leaders who would go to great lengths saying that their socialism with Chinese characteristics is vastly superior to ours. Why? Well, look in one of your statements how far China has come in the last 30, 40 years, saying to me, and they believe, that they could never have progressed as quickly as far under uh, capitalism, under democracy. It never would have happened. And there's probably some truth to that. They do believe they're superior. They think they're the model for other developing countries, Africa, South Africa, wherever in the world, because they're so much more efficient, they get so much more done so much more quickly. We have to recognize that and deal with that. We pride ourselves as Americans in our Judeo-Christian ethic, in our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, separation of powers, independent judiciary. It's our way. We think it's the right way. We assume too much that it's the right way. We think it's right for us. We, we do think it's right for others. But we can't assume that others are going to adopt it if they have a different point of view. And in this case, China has a very different point of view. You have to remember, and I've, this has been said many times, and I think there's a lot to it, China is so proud of its history. Thousands of years of history. We're such a young country. Really, 240, 50 years, that's all we are. There are thousands of years. And the Middle Kingdom was the center of the universe you know, for thousands of years. They would ask people to come and pay tribute, not to trade with them, just pay tribute, to kowtow to the emperors of the Middle Kingdom, and, but, and not do deals. Just other countries would be subservient to them. Don't forget about 1830, 32% of the world GDP was in China, was Chinese. American that year is about 2%. They were 32%. Look at what's changed during the Industrial Revolution, and then China subsequently went inward. They now think, after 200 years of humiliation, controlled by the Japanese, French, Americans, Brits, and so forth, then now their time has come. Their time has come to regain their rightful position as, if not the world leader, at least a major leader in the world, it's very difficult to know how far that's going to go. I was in Beijing just a couple weeks ago. I was surprised to learn from a number of Chinese that, uh, who believe that, gee, you Americans, you pursued the Monroe Doctrine in 1823. You Americans wanted to keep the Europeans out of, of your, your sphere. Well, we Chinese, you know, it's our turn now. Well, why do you want to, you shouldn't interfere with what we're doing. It's basically they're trying to set up a duality where China controls this part of the world. They want the United States to control this part of the world. Of course, that's never going to work. Times have changed so much. But that's a lot of their thinking right now as they try to figure out what makes best sense for them. China is, remember this, is authoritarian. One party rule. The party is everything. It's involved in all parts of Chinese society. 19th Party Congress enhanced President Xi's power, but also very much enhanced the role of the party in, 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 in Chinese society. Xi's thought is embedded in the Constitution. So if you question President Xi, you're not questioning him, you're questioning the party, because his thoughts is in the Constitution. It's a very, very major change. They're doing this in part 
the party is to maintain control. Part of the Faustian bargain, party believes, we take care of you, we take care of the people, and you don't question our legitimacy. That's part of the deal. But in addition, they believe that with much greater party control, they then can control their destiny. They can decide what direction they want to go as a country, free from internal discord. If the party is control, they're able to control what happens. It's, 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 it came through in spades to me just the last couple of weeks when I was over there talking to some of the Chinese officials. This became crystallized for me in November 2014. President Obama was visiting President Xi at a summit meeting there in Zhongnan High. And President Xi, you could tell, he was worried about American involvement in Hong Kong, thinking we Americans are fomenting unrest in Hong Kong. President Obama said, oh no, you know, we don't do that. But he did say, you've got to remember that human rights is very much in our DNA. It's in our Constitution, our Declaration of Independence, our Bill of Rights. So when members of Congress stand up on behalf of human rights in Hong Kong, okay, remember, that's the American DNA. He also said, well, it's in my DNA too. President Xi then responded by saying, talking about the role of emperors in China. And emperors in Chinese history take care of the people. That's, you know, people are happy, you know, they can stay in power. He said the role of the party now is to take care of the people. It even trumps human rights, he said. It's all is taking care of the people, irrespective of human rights and anything else. So that he believes, and the government believes, they can keep people happy by, or income, incomes rising, address air pollution, water pollution, food safety, more health care. People will be happy, and then they'll stay in power. And they can do what they think makes sense for them tapping into the strong nationalism that occurs in that country. So the question is, what do we do? What do we do about all this? Number one, I believe, and this is kind of a fanciful recommendation, if we could load up a 747 full of members of Congress, members of executive branch, media, business people, fly over to China, go around China for a couple of weeks, Go to different provinces, talk to the party secretaries, talk to the business people, Chinese business people, American business people doing business in China. Seeing is believing, we know that. 80% of life is showing up. If more members of Congress and more American officials have spent a lot more time in China, tasting it, feeling it, smelling it, knowing what it is, it's going to make a huge, huge difference. There's just too much abstract thinking about China. Not enough concrete, because we're just not there enough. Second, we all know that China thinks long-term. China is strategic. They've kind of got a plan. It's opaque, it's behind closed doors, but it's a plan. We Americans are just so ad hoc in our decision-making. It is embarrassing. During the last three years when I was there, I was part of many discussions, administration, what do we, what do, we do about this? What do you do about that? It was all reactive. It was all reactive. There is no paradigm. There is no structure. There is no plan that the various parts could potentially be part of. We need to do, it's very hard in our form of government to develop a longer term plan. Congress, people come and go, presidents do. It's very hard. But I think we have to try. We have to do whatever we can to develop a longer strategic plan. And I think the Senate Foreign Relations Committee can play a very, 
good role here by having lots of hearings on various aspects of China and keep it up every year so there's a history build up and there's a record and so this is institutionalized if we work on this question. Number three, he got to stand up to China. He got to stand up to them. It's, um, don't forget, we are process oriented, we Americans. We're kind of the arbiters. It's kind of neutral. It's similar, the analogy is when you're treading water, you're sinking. You know, we don't have a real aggressive plan. We don't want to take advantage of other people. We don't want them to take advantage of us, but we don't have a plan or, that is more far reaching. It's, one can put one's finger on, it's tangible, and get a sense of. China does. They've got their plan, and it's more, more action oriented. It's more proactive. We don't do that as Americans. But we've got to stand up to them. And because uh, if we don't, they'll just keep going. They'll just keep going until finally somebody stands up to them. I want to mention very briefly two instances where we did stand up and it really worked. There's several, but I'll just mention two. We're quite concerned, obviously, about the island buildup in the South China Sea. We watched with great frustration as China, one step at a time, it's, it's part of the Chinese, you know, similar to the Chinese board game of Weichi. We play chess in the West, they play Go and Weichi in the East. And they just want salami slicing a step at a time, and pretty soon the game's over because you're, you've just surrounded your, your opponent. You, you just won. That's just the way it is. That's what they did in the South China Sea. Until President Xi came over one day, it was just before a summit, and, uh, and President Obama proudly said to President Xi, don't go there. He's talking about the Scarborough Shoal, just outside the Philippines. He said, if you uh, occupy a Scarborough Shoal, there'll be immense consequences. You will rue the day that you did this. I'm not telling you what the consequences will be, but I don't do it. They stopped. They didn't do it. There are other examples, but you have to stand up. In my judgment, you're not with tweets, not publicly, not with name calling, but privately, and show, because you thought through with your strategic plan, that you mean it. And, it's, and you have to game it out. They'll retaliate. Um, we'll have to figure out what our counter is back and forth, but they have to see that we really mean it. And my, many times in my experience, when we do stand up, but you've got to stand up, you've got to know you're standing up, they'll say, okay, I guess can't quite go there. So I'll just, that's just my basic prescription. Spend a lot more time in China, if you understand it, develop a plan, and just be firm. This, it's, it's, these Chinese people are wonderful. It's great potential here for our two countries. And I forgot one more final point here. It's part of the last point is speaking truth to power. I, after a while, at all the meetings I had, would ask questions. Uh, I'd interrupt the interlocutor who was reading from his talking points. Just ask questions, break in, mid-sentence. Give me an example of that, of, you know, explain more fully. They liked it. You gotta speak, speak truth to power. And second, I did this very frequently, I think uh, Professor Allison will appreciate this, at, very, at many, many meetings, I just asked the Thucydides trap question. I'd say, look, your GDP is doubling every 10 years. Your military spending is doubling five or six years. What, we look at the trend line, and what are we to think? We Americans, we Westerners. It's not only what you say, it's what you do. 
What are your actions to show that you really want to work with this so we can avoid the trap? I'd ask that question constantly. They'd always listen. They wouldn't respond, but they listened. My judgment is we have to keep asking that question of the Chinese and of ourselves because rising, established, things are going to change. And it's, it's, it's another reason for those longer-term strategic hearings, which I recommend this committee pursue um, at great length, because I think it's really key. And thank you very much. And I apologize for speaking over my lot of time. Thanks, time. Ambassador. But Thanks. thank you very much. Yeah, no, thank you, Ambassador. And I know uh, several of you have family members here, so thank you for joining us as well. Uh, Dr. Pillsbury. Uh, I want to agree with all three of Senator Baucus's recommendations, uh, although I'm not sure we should put all of the Congress on 1747 <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> Uh, more knowledge of China, a, a deeper role, a bigger role for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, and the Senate in general, and number three, uh, standing up to China. Let me go back to Senator Markey's opening statement. Uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, by its visits and by its legislation, and here I want to specifically praise Senator John Barrasso for being one of the co-sponsors of the legislation introduced last week to uh, strengthen CFIUS. This is landmark legislation. It has nine co-sponsors already, five Republicans, four Democrats, including Dianne Feinstein. Um, your House uh, parallel legislation sponsor stood up last week and said this is about China, whereas the senator has so far been more tactful. This is about any country whose investments in our country need to be monitored or restricted. This particular piece of legislation uh, is an example of, I think, what Senator Baucus is talking about. Senate or congressional leadership on forming a long-term strategy toward China. The Founding Fathers wrote into the Constitution a really crucial role for the Senate, not just in the confirmation process, but in the treaty ratification process, which if you've read some of the early stories of George Washington and Henry Knox, for the first treaty, they thought they would just show it to the Senate for a few minutes and then take it back. And the senator said, no, we need to keep it overnight. And there was something close to a tug of war. Accounts vary on whether the president would let the senators have the treaty overnight. Uh, the Senate won. And the role of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in particular in its oversight of the State Department can serve not just as a kind of... Uh, source of advice, but also legislation. And I pr provide in my uh, paper uh, 10 or 11 examples of some really specific things that I believe are already been being worked on. I, I certainly support Senator Gardner, Gardner's effort at the Asian Reassurance Initiative. There's a parallel effort, as you know, with, Senate, with Chairman McCain over in the Armed Services Committee. Uh, I was pleased in Singapore in June to hear Secretary of Defense uh, Jim Mattis endorse the McCain initiative. It's not clear what the 300 or 400 million dollars exactly would be spent for, but the intent is clear that our Asian allies and partners do not have shared situational awareness of what is going on in Asia. The Indians fairly recently were joking about, we want to make the Indian Ocean the Indian Ocean by which they meant the purchase of several billion dollars worth of American P-8 aircraft, which have weapon systems in the back that can sink ships, frankly, 
and other improvements, including maritime situational awareness and a big new center in Delhi where the Indians can keep track of both blue holes and gray holes going through the Indian Ocean. Chinese are very angry about this. They have criticized the Obama administration for its effort to, uh, as they say, boost India to a higher rank order in comprehensive power than the Chinese believe India deserves. So I think it's a very good thing uh, that Chairman Gardner mentioned the Indo-Pak region and this new concept which we've now heard more than 50 times by members of the Trump administration, including the president himself on his trip, uh, a free and open Indo-Pacific region. The Chinese have already attacked this. They don't like it. It's probably an example of what Senator Baucus mentioned, standing up to China. Because frankly, there's quite a long list of Chinese initiatives to which the United States has not responded. Uh, one of them is the Belt and Road Initiative that Senator Markey mentioned. Uh, I completely agree with him that it, they're offering low interest loans to countries that can't afford it. We're already faced with the example of Sri Lanka, which fell behind in its payments and then was the subject of coercion that if you transfer the main port here in Sri Lanka to Chinese control, we'll forgive the debt. The Sri Lankans did it. The similar operation has occurred recently with the, not purchase, with the, assuming the control, financially at least, of the main port of Greece, Piraeus, and then asking the Greeks to interfere and block European Union human rights action. So we're beginning to see just through the media what the Belt and Road Initiative may mean. However, the only statesman in the world who stood up to it yet is Prime Minister Modi, who he and his team have been quite out outspoken, partly because the Belt and Road Initiative includes violation of Indian sovereign claims. But the United States government up till now, and this is a five-year-old initiative if you count the early part of it, has been silent. We sent our National Security Council staff senior director for East Asia to the Belt and Road Summit, who said something positive about American companies, but he neither opposed nor supported the Belt and Road Initiative. There are several others. One is the new model of great power relations that in many ways anticipates uh, Professor Allison's excellent book. The new model of great power relations has been proposed by President Xi, he's described it as a personal signature initiative. A gentleman named Wang Hu Ning, who's now on the standing committee of the Politburo, is the scholar allegedly who thought it up. We've had no answer to it. Susan Rice, John Kerry, President Obama, all three have said we should explore it or try to see what it means, but have not endorsed it. Uh, neither did President Trump on this trip. Frankly, if you ask the Chinese, and I agree with Senator Baucus about how energetic they are, if you say, what is the new model of great power relations? They say, well, it replaces the old model. And what is the old model? Well, it's the main theme of Graham Allison's Destined for War. In the old model, the rising power either starts a war with the hegemon or the hegemon starts a war with the rising power. So you would think, who could be against the new model? But then it turns out the new model doesn't explain who a great power is, whether India, the European Union, or Japan qualify, or it's just a G2 bilateral arrangement. It doesn't explain whether the use of force would ever be justified by the United States. It sounds in some ways as if the new model of great power relations, if we would agree to it, is saying we will not come to the defense of any ally 
in the region uh, against China. So the Senate has yet to speak on those two Chinese initiatives, and there are several others. Uh, one is the Asia for the Asians concept, where our embassy uh, asked to be at least an observer down in Shanghai to go to this confidence building conference. And we were told, no, you can be an observer. But the, when we say Asia for the Asians, we don't include the United States. Um, there's another vague concept, what I personally love, called the community of common destiny. This was repeated several times in President Xi's three-and-a-half-hour speech. No one quite knows what the community of common destiny is, but Senator Bacchus mentioned the old tribute system, and there's some reason to believe that that is really what it is. It's reactivating common destiny led by China. And that lets me mention my agreement with Professor Allison and Li Guan Yu. Your first set of four or five questions for the hearing asked about Chinese intentions, and there's no, really no better answer than what Li Guan Yu gave. I see if I can get the exact quote here. It is China's intention to be the greatest power in the world. Now, we used to take that with complacency because of what was called the China collapse theory, that they're going to fall apart. They have no chance to be the greatest power in the world. That book came out, The Coming Collapse of China, in, 20, in 2002. Fifteen years later, China's GDP is not only doubled, it's almost tripled. So the China collapse theory, which Graham Allison essentially attacks in his book, and I attack in my book, essentially is no longer credible in my view. They have problems, but they know what to do about those problems. So just to list in closing the, the ten steps that I think are under consideration. You may think this is trivial, but we've sued China more than any other country in the World Trade Organization in Geneva. The experts tell me we could have sued China and should a great deal more times, but there's a limit on the number of lawyers on the Department of Justice payroll for designing and crafting the often very complex lawsuits so, so that the suit succeeds in Geneva. Number two, the comprehensive CFIUS reform. I love the Cornyn-Feinstein uh, bill, but it doesn't mention the allies. We've got to coordinate with the European Union and, and especially Germany and France about these Chinese investments undergoing scrutiny. A number of uh, European Union leaders have already come out for this in the last couple of months. I think we should be joining them on, on joint scrutiny of sensitive Chinese investments that either challenge national security or uh, are opaque because you can't tell what a Chinese company is, whether it's part of the government or not. The fact that Senator Dianne Feinstein supports this legislation, I think, is very important. So does Richard Burr, uh, the chairman on Intelligence Committee. Number three, I mentioned that more coordination with allies. What I took out of President Trump's trip was that he spent a lot of time with three multilateral organizations. It wasn't just five countries being visited bilaterally. That's important. It seems to me nothing really of significance along the lines of what Senator Baucus is calling for can be achieved in Asia or the Indo-Pacific region without allies and partners. We can't uh, underline that enough. Number four is an old pitch. Professor Ellis's book says China is going to deny us a Sputnik moment because China does not want us to give a boost to STEM, to federally funded R&D. We should do it on our own. There's a lot of good ideas from the uh, Senate Competitiveness Caucus, from the uh, what's called the ITIF, 
and from another set, set of groups who work on com competition showing that federally funded R&D is the source of our global superiority. Yet we've dropped from 2% to about a half of 1% in our federal funds. I think publishing a list of companies who engage, Chinese companies who engage in intellectual property theft and unfair trade practices would not only inform possible litigants, uh, but also puts the Chinese on notice we are watching this kind of behavior that Senator Markey alluded to. Finally, measures to provide U.S. companies a better understanding of state-owned entities is important because when something like the purchase of the Waldorf Astoria takes place, on the surface it looks wonderful. It's a good deal for the Waldorf Astoria, but what is the nature of this Anbang insurance company? The more its, it's a CEO has now disappeared in China, and the more people examine it, the more it clearly has very close relationship, perhaps under the control of the Chinese government. I mentioned in passing the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act and the Economic Espionage Act could use revisiting. As you know, when a state-owned company in China act, is active here and is sued, you would think a judge would say, well, if we can't attach those assets because you don't really have any presence, we can attach another state-owned company. The judges have been saying the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act is unclear. The Economic Espionage Act, if you go to the DOJ website for last year, it makes you want to cry. Almost 100 cases of sensitive U.S. trade and national security information disappearing. And frankly, just to uh, give you one of the most dramatic examples, a gentleman uh, is now doing seven years in prison because he fell in love with a Chinese woman. The judge at his sentencing, Senator Bacchus, the judge at the sentencing said, you fell in love with this woman, you lost control, I'm only giving you seven years because you didn't really harm the United States, you didn't intend to. Well, what had he done? The FBI and DOJ put up the, the details. He had a document called the, a classified, highly classified document called the DOD Strategy for China. Despite Professor Allison criticizing the government that we have no strategy, apparently we did. It's published in 2012, and two years later, apparently he's in the hands of the Chinese. That's not all. There's quite a long list of documents that he either gave Miss Lee or were around in his home while she was there. It's well worth reading the DOJ website. You may think, what can be more boring than that? But the cases are dramatic. Finally, another thing we haven't responded to as a government is the new Made in China 2025 plan, which on its face is a violation of the WTO. You simply can't say we will have government procurement in China to dominate 10 sectors in violation of the WTO, and they're close to saying that. Um, finally, something I, I sort of uh, brought up as one of my 12 recommendations in my own book, uh, we've never done an inventory of all the U.S. government-funded activities for the last 40 years to help China. Some of it's quite stunning. The National Science Foundation, if you go to its website to apply for a grant, and they, by the way, Graham, they have them in political science, Two, you get a bonus if you have a Chinese partner. We have almost 100 agreements with various scientific agencies in China to provide scientific discoveries immediately to China. And they've been known in a rather cheeky way to complain to the embassy in Beijing, hey, we read about this, this new gene editing uh, device, 
you haven't transferred it to us yet. And tweak the NSF or the Embassy Minister Counselor for Science and Technology. That's really possibly a good thing in some areas. We ought to cooperate in cancer research. We ought to cooperate in improving weather forecasts with this joint fleet of ships we have in the South Pacific. But I think the Senate should know the total inventory of these programs, none of which has been <laughs> blessed with legislative approval. In many cases, you find weird programs where someone discovered prairie grass roots can be made deeper and save a massive area of the country. The relevant government department simply transferred it to China. There's no sense of competitiveness with the Chinese, in very sharp contrast to Senator Baucus's invocation of their competitive attitudes. And finally, the intelligence efforts. The FBI asks every year for more money for Chinese industrial espionage, in particular cyber theft as well. Uh, the FBI deserves a real uh, incentive for what they've done so far, but they say more needs to be done. And part of the reason is, again, back to what Senator Baucus opened up with, Chinese exceptionalism. They seem to have a very different concept of espionage than we do and than the Soviets did. Not official cover agents in embassies going to cocktail parties and trying to recruit agents. On the contrary, something very different that operates not out of embassies but out of almost anywhere else. And that's very expensive to cover. Uh, but if this list I mentioned of the recent cases last year is any guide, um, we're under real challenge from a Chinese collection system that uh, takes your breath away. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Pillsbury. Uh, we're joined by Senator Kane. Uh, Professor Allison, please proceed. So thank you very much. It's a great honor to appear with the distinguished colleagues, and I find much in what they've said to agree with. Let me commend you. Uh, and the committee for uh, trying to investigate this topic because I don't think there's a more important topic for the U.S. today. So I'll try to summarize my points uh, briefly. They basically come out of this book that I've recently published called Destined for War, Can America and China Escape Thucydides' Trap? And I think copies of the book were delivered to your offices previously. So I'll try to make it as six or seven propositions first. The U.S. now faces a rising China that today constitutes a full-spectrum rival. So the notion of we're not going to have peer competitors, that was then, this is now. Uh, never before has a country risen so far so fast on so many different dimensions. Ambassador Bacchus and I were talking, he said, you know, he, he's been gone for six months and he goes back and is shocked again. So I try in the first chapter of the book to give you a shock that just sort of says, behold the rise of China. I quote Vaclav Havel, the former Czech president. Things have happened so fast, we haven't yet had time to be astonished. So I think you should look at the evidence and it's just overwhelming. And then I think you should go and look with your own eyes. Uh, secondly, we should recognize the structural stress that occurs when a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power. This dangerous dynamic I call Thucydides' trap. And Thucydides had this idea about 2,500 years ago. It's a big idea. So when a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power, in general, 
poop happens. So in the book, I look at the last 500 years. I find 16 cases in which this phenomenon occurred. 12 of them ended in war. Four of them in not war. So the proposition or claim that says war between Houston and China is inevitable would be wrong on the evidence. But to say that the odds are not good would be correct. Third proposition. In this dangerous dynamic, the primary source of risk is not that the rising power decides, I'm big, I'm strong, it's time for me to fight you. And it's not generally the case that the ruling power decides, you're getting so big for your britches, I better fight you now, because tomorrow you're going to be even stronger. Instead, what happens is in this dangerous dynamic, a third party's action becomes a provocation to which one of the other primary competitors feels obliged to respond, to which then the other feels obliged to respond, and you get a cascade that drags people to a place where neither want to be. So ask yourself, how in the world could the assassination of a relatively minor archduke in June of 1914 have created a conflagration that burned down the whole of Europe? But I have a good chapter on this in my book. It's a subject I studied when I was in college. I still cannot tell you the answer. Still makes no sense. Nobody wanted war. When they had thought about what a war would mean, they knew it would be catastrophic. At the end of the war, every one of the principal actors had lost what he cared about most. So if they'd been given a chance for a do-over, nobody would have chosen what he did. But... The emperor in Vienna did, thinking I need to hold together my empire into the war. He's gone. His empire's gone. Russian czar is backing the Serbs because they're orthodox. He's been overthrown by the Bolsheviks. He's gone. Kaiser is backing his only ally in Vienna. He's gone. France, bled of its youth for a whole generation. Society never recovers as a great player. And Britain, which has been a creditor for 100 years, is turned into a debtor on a slow slide to decline. So you don't have to have people that want war. What can happen is an external event. And if I think about the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, which I've studied very carefully, here you see a competition between the US and the Soviet Union and the risks that were created by Castro. And then today, the chief candidate for provocateur is, uh, as President Trump would say, Little rocket man, okay. Uh, so, uh, next question. Uh, is she uh, or, and, and his colleagues, when they're talking to each other privately, are they serious about displacing the U.S. as the predominant power in Asia in the foreseeable future? And I could put that question to Lee Kuan Yew, who was the world's premier China watcher, until his death in 2015. I quote in the testimony his answer. He says, of course, why not? Who could imagine otherwise? How could they not aspire to be number one in Asia? And in time beyond. So what Ambassador Bacchus uh, talked about, China imagines that if through all of history, it was the only, it was the center of the universe. It was the great power. There was then this interruption, which occurred a couple hundred years ago, created centuries of humiliation, but that was then 
we're back and we're going to be back to the way things were before. So uh, finally, or next to, next to final, what's, what is going to happen in the current uh, Korean uh, missile crisis, which is just the most dangerous of the events that's occurring in the context of this Thucydidean dynamic. So uh, jump ahead a year from today. We'll see one of three things will have happened. One, Kim Jong-un will have acquired the ability to reliably strike San Francisco or Los Angeles with a nuclear weapon. Or two, Trump will have conducted air attacks on North Korea to prevent that happening. Or three, there'll be a minor miracle. Now, I believe in miracles, so I'm praying for the third, but I'm not counting on it. I would say it's quite possible. I think the first is more likely than the second. That is, that Kim Jong-un succeeds. That he will have trumped Trump. And that's not a very good world either, as I suggest in the, test, in the, in the piece that I attach to the testimony. The second is that we attack North Korea. And if we do, the normal game that Michael and I have played many, many times at the defense ends up with North Korea attacks Seoul. We then suppress the attacks on Seoul. Pretty soon we've attacked a couple of thousand name points. Then there's the Second Korean War. And as Secretary Mattis has testified, in the Second Korean War, make no doubt, we will win. Korea will be unified. The Kim regime will be gone. But the one question he hasn't been asked is, what about China? And if, if we can't imagine North Korea dragging China and the US into a war that everyone knows would be nuts and that nobody wants, we should remember what happened in 1950. In 1950, North Korea attacked South Korea. We came to the rescue. MacArthur was pushing the North Koreans right back up the peninsula. We went across the 38th parallel where the war started. We were approaching the Chinese border. He thought we were going to wrap it up, bring the troops home for Christmas. It was inconceivable to him that a China, which had only the year before consolidated control of its own country, Mao was just barely getting over the long, bloody civil war, would attack Superman. We had a nuclear monopoly. We had just five years before dropped bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki to end World War II. It just was impossible. China was 150th our size. It's going to attack us? Never. But MacArthur woke up one day and here's 300,000 Chinese and pretty soon a half million others. They beat us right back down to the 38th parallel and we have to sue for an armistice. Tens of thousands of Americans and hundreds of thousands of Chinese and millions of Koreans died in that war. But did Mao want a war with the U.S.? Never. Did the U.S. want a war with China? Never. Just, we didn't want the North Koreans to take over South Korea, and one thing led to the other. So I would say, Chinese say to me, and I think it's uncertain what they would actually do, but they say, we have established the proposition there is not going to be a unified Korea that's an American military ally. That's what Mao made that point in 1950, and we shouldn't have to play that game again. I say to him, if you were to get into war with the US, every part of the China dream goes right to hell. And they say, yeah, but if you were to get into a war with us, 
What is that going to look like for you? So I would say this is extremely, extremely dangerous. F finally, what for the U.S. to do? Senator Baucus's point. Uh, in Washington, I know that you're supposed to describe the solution to the problem in the same sentence that you describe the problem. I think that's one of the problems, okay? So this is not a fixable Washington problem. This is a condition, like a chronic condition, that we're going to have to cope with for as far as we can see. A rising China, a ruling U.S., the stress and strain that comes in that circumstance. And what I do say in the book, at the, in the conclusion, is we need to get the diagnosis right first. So the medical idea that diagnosis precedes prescription is a very good insight. I try to get the diagnosis right in the book. That's the purpose of it. In the conclusion, I say, well, if the diagnosis is correct, what then is required? So if we're facing conditions of extreme danger, then we have to be smarter. We have to be more imaginative. We have to be more adaptive. And I would say in this current situation, business as usual, which is what I think we've seen for the last 20 years, Republican and Democrats, more or less, will likely produce history as usual. So my hope is Santayana's line about only those who fail to study history are condemned to repeat it. And I think what, we, what I would hope we do now, what I think the Foreign Relations Committee can play a key role in doing, is starting stimulating imagination beyond the orthodoxy of the current situation. In the conclusion of the book, I give you something way to the left of anything anybody ever heard of in Washington that might make sense, I'm not advocating it, and something way to the right of anything that you've heard in the current debate, and not because I'm subscribing to either of these, but simply to say we haven't opened up the space for the discussion and debate. And my, my optimism about this is that if we go back to the invention of the strategy for the Cold War, that's a breathtaking, breathtaking. I think most of us just haven't really looked at it and appreciated it. I have a description of it in the book. 1946, it's April. So a year after the war, Kennan writes back this famous long telegram. And he says, the Soviet Union is going to be a greater existential threat to the USA than the Nazis were. Truman says, who is this guy? And what in the world is he saying? This makes no sense. We just got exhausted in a war against first the G Germans and the Japanese. We're bringing the troops home. We're trying to worry about health care and about the American economy. Don't tell me we have another dragon out there. That stimulated a conversation which four years later had created one of the most imaginative strategies, I think, in the history of statescraft forever. So it had an economic strand. That was the IMF, the World Bank, the GATT, the open trading system, and the Marshall Plan, which was, again, breathtaking idea. It had a military component, with both American military forces, but also with NATO. It had an entangling alliance. George Washington said, said don't do that. But it said, we, Europe and Japan matter enough to us that unless we're able to rebuild them and have them as allies, we won't be able to deal with this competition. It had a political dimension. I mean, the whole thing is breathtaking. So the fact that we have done something like that before as a society would suggest that's not impossible. But I think that that's, uh, that's the challenge.
Thank you, Professor Allison. You've all given us a, a great deal to think about. We'll go ahead and begin uh, the, the, the questions you've given us. A number of questions. We'll probably have some questions for the record to follow up with, if that's all right with you, give you some homework. Um, in your testimony, uh, both uh, verbally as well as in the written testimony, uh, Professor Allison, you talk a little bit about this democratic peace hypothesis. Uh, and uh, we've talked about how if we work with China uh, to address uh, human rights, if we work with China to address intellectual property, if we work with, dress, uh, with China to address uh, reforms when it comes to uh, different laws and, and uh, respect of, of the rule of law, that they will eventually come around to our way. Um, you've talked about how that's simply not going to be the case. If that's not the case, then how, how does the United States position itself um, in the region with other nations that obviously won't like uh, that outcome either? What, what's the best result for us to position ourselves with allies in the region uh, to counter that? Okay, thank you. That's a very, it's a great question, and it actually relates to the point that Senator Baucus made before. So it's, it's a little bit of a caricature, but only a little bit, uh, that in uh, 1991, when the Cold War ended and the Soviet Union disappeared, most of the strategic community, most of the Washington community, sort of took a victory lap and was in a stage of celebration. And there was a very famous book that was written by a, a brilliant scholar, Frank Fukuyama. It was called The End of History. And it declared that now democratic capitalism had swept the field and there would no longer be ideological competitors. And the theory of the case was the Soviet Union had gone bad because they were trying to run a command and control economy. Only market capitalism can, be, can make you rich. So everybody's going to adopt that. And as they get richer, they're going to have a middle class. And if they had a middle class, it's going to have more political participation, so it's going to become democratic. And then democratic societies, according to the democratic peace hypothesis, don't fight each other. And the kind of cartoon version of that was uh, Tom Friedman's Golden Arch Theory, in which two countries that have McDonald's Golden Arches can't fight each other. Okay. So we imagined China was going to become like us. But I have a chapter in the book on Clash of Civilizations. I think Senator Bacchus captured the point just right. The Chinese think they were Chinese before we ever arrived. <laughs> they think they have a civilization that has its own view of the way things work. They think that the emperor or a system, I, I call uh, Xi Jinping now that he's been reelected but without a successor, the new emperor of China, that basically the emperor through the party, which are the, 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 the reach of the Leninist mandarins, the way the mandarins used to give the reach of the emperor, are going to lead the society. And if you look at the, the work plan that, Lee, that uh, she laid out last week, it's got the party leading the economy, the party leading the military, the party leading the society, the party leading the internet, the party, the party, the party. So they believe that a small group of people who are going to be, quote, more virtuous, that's part of what the anti-corruption campaign about, are going to lead their society, and they're going to demonstrate that they can deliver more of what people want than we do. Another one of the shockers for people who thought, oh, well, they're really going to come around to our way, was in, last, in, the, in the 19th Party Congress in Beijing last week and a week before, 
They said, before they've never talked about a China model. They've always said, we don't have a model. We just do for ourselves. We're a poor developing country. You know, uh, they said, I think we do have a model. I think we have a model of how, if you want to get rich fast, this is the way to go. And this way is an authoritarian way that's contrary to our view. This is a view that says the citizens have obligations more than our view that they have freedoms and rights. This is a view that says we're going to control the whole information system so we both know what you're saying and what you're thinking. We can keep track of you. And we're going to uh, exploit our situation to the maximum extent that we can get away with. So I think we should recognize we have a serious here competitor who has a different image of how they want to rule their world inside China and how they want to behave in, the, in their region. And I think that's what makes the competition there. Therefore, because we're not going to give up who we are, being democratic or being concerned about. Our constitution says all human beings are endowed by the creator with unalienable rights. So we're not, we're not about to change you know, that set of views. And they're not, I think, about to change their views. If I could quickly get an answer from, uh, from you, uh, the three of you, actually, on the president's visit to Asia. Uh, how would you portray the success uh, of the, or the outcome of the president's uh, Asia visit? Dr. Pillsbury. Call it a success, I'll yell out in a loud voice, in the sense that it lays the foundation for future trips. Uh, there's a number of themes he brought up bilaterally that you actually will find in these very detailed bilateral agreements issued at each stop. Uh, for example, the one on the Philippines actually has a section on human rights. In each one of these agreements, there's a discussion of security cooperation, arms sales, specific things. I noticed the press doesn't cover any of those agreements. But if you put them together, it's almost 50 pages of the beginnings of an Asia-Pacific or an Indo-Pacific strategy. I'm talking about the bilateral agreements that the president issued at each stop. Uh, secondly, he's, he started some broad themes uh, that we can integrate better than before, possibly, security and trade and economics. If you notice the team uh, with him in the meeting with President Xi, you saw Bob Lighthizer sitting there from USTR. That's unusual. Uh, you saw four NSC staffers, some of whom cover strategy and economics, not just uh, the East Asia uh, couple who were there. So this, to me, is refreshing, the idea that uh, the pivot perhaps was a good idea to start with, but it needs to be a combination of trade and economics with security issues and arms sales, and there's another angle to it that the president brought out. The bilateral meetings can be harmonized at the same time as the multilateral meetings. There's an old expression that Senator Markey, I'm sure, knows that they use in the State Department called multi-buy. It doesn't mean when you think it means, it means multilateral and bilateral combined. So I think Professor Allison has done us all a great service in his book about the diagnosis of the problem. But he's a little bit late to the party. A lot of senators, congressmen, White House staff, people in the Defense Department are already working on very specific, tangible legislation and other steps that frankly accepts destined for war as being correct in its diagnosis. But it's time to get down to specifics. 
And I think we're way beyond uh, the McDonald's arches theory. We're now into really specific things. Does the Senate Formulations Committee want to check up or not on what the entire executive branch is doing to help China be more competitive? That's like a yes or no. Thank you, Mr. Pilser. And we'll be on more time. Do you mind if I hear from the other two? Just, just the, the visit to, China, to Asia would appreciate your point of view. I, I, uh, I, I think I agree with Michael mainly, but I would say that the, the, it's, it's very hard to tell. I think I would give it a success, uh, su successful for as far as I can see from the actions and the words, but wh the work that was done was done in private. So without having a sense for whether she and Trump sat down together, what I would wish, and say, wait a minute, here's this jerk, Kim Jong-un. He could drag the two of us into a war. Let's be serious about how we're not going to let that happen. That Either they made some real progress on that front, or they didn't. And I think we can't tell at this point. You could see that's what, what President Trump was trying to do, and he was trying to work with Xi in that regard. But I think that uh, if I've watched Xi's actions so far, well, you can see a little a little bit of hope, and that's the, I mean that's the minor miracle that I'm looking for yeah. uh, in this situation because I think there's no question that if she says to Kim Jong Un, "You're stopping no more ICBM tests and no more nuclear tests, and if you violate that, I'm squeezing this well lifeline," it'll get his attention. Thank you, First Allison, Ambassador Bacchus. I, I'm, I'm way over time. Do you mind, or would you, Ambassador Bacchus, please? Yeah, um, I take I take a slightly different view. Frankly, um, I don't think the president accomplished very much in China. There's no evidence of any movement on North Korea. The United States has been asking China, almost demanding of China, do more, do more, do more. President Trump did too. No result. Second, um, there was this big agreement announced of of uh, deals between American companies and China. If you look down deep, you find out there's not much there there. Um, there are MOUs or there are deals that were agreed to earlier, but there's nothing new. But more importantly, there's nothing that I could see that addressed the fundamentals. The fundamentals being uh, market access. American companies denied sufficient market access in China, addressing uh, <clears throat> all the subsidies that China made in China 2025 has been mentioned. There's nothing addressing those fundamentals. I think we lost. We looked weak, in my judgment, because there's nothing solid. Then you go to the further south, the big glaring problem is that his presence there and his words of withdrawing from the TPP send a signal to all the, all the countries in the region that we are really not fully involved and we're starting to withdraw exceeding to China. Lee Kuan Yew has been mentioned many times here. Lee Kuan Yew met with President Obama in 2009. Lee Kuan Yew asked President Obama, what do you do about the TPP? Obama said, well, I don't know. He said, you better go back and, and, and put that together, because if you don't, you're going to cede trade to China. Yeah. So we, and as you know, the other countries decided, well, the United States pulled out a TPP. We'll do it ourselves. And it's, I tell you, I, if I you don't mind, I, I want to make sure I get to the other. Yeah, I, so, I want to make one yeah. point here. The most important geopolitical matter that crossed my desk during the three years I was there was TPP. 
and we blew it. We absolutely blew it. And other countries see that. And actions speak louder than words. There's a nice lot of talk about this Indo-Pacific, but it's just words so far. Now maybe we'll find that it'll amount to more of it. So far, I don't see anything that's very constructive. Thank you, Ambassador. Senator Markey. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. And uh, this is my 41st year in Congress, and it's the first time a chairman ever allowed all three opening witnesses to speak for 15 minutes apiece. <laughs> so we're making history. It's like a. We I apologize. <laughs> no, you shouldn't apologize. It's just like he was uh, wanting me to speak truth to power. No, I don't know it's what it's a it's it's you know kind of a course at Harvard. Okay, and uh, so it's, it's we're we're up here and learning. So we thank you for for that. Um, so um, let me just go to P Professor Allison's uh, point that he just made about whether or not China will cut off the oil um, going into North Korea. Ninety um, percent of all trade uh, that North Korea engages in is with um, China, but clearly the most important part of it is oil, because that's the lubricant for all parts of an economy. So um, thus far, the Chinese have been unwilling to do it. Uh, in 2006, they were willing to do it, and the North Koreans actually went back to the table uh, in 2006. Um, so we know where the pressure point is. So if we could just go across and just ask, um, would you recommend that the United States insist that the Chinese cut off the oil, not towards the goal of collapsing the regime, not towards the goal of uh, uniting North and South Korea, but towards the goal of driving the North Koreans to the table so we can accomplish the goal of not having them complete their ICBM hydrogen bomb uh, program? Mr. Pilsner. Beautiful. I would have them squeeze it, maybe by 25%, to get their attention, and then talk to them and say, what's not going to happen is you're not going to have any more ICBM tests, and you're not going to have any nuclear tests. And if you do, you're not going to have any oil. Well, the Chinese say that they've already squeezed the 25%. Well, I would say that I, I've been trying to watch, and I, I haven't seen it. I've seen a little bit of talking about it. But I think, I think that uh, Kim Jong-un believes he can get away with murder. He usually does. So I think it's going to be very hard to move him. Okay. Um, uh, um, Ambassador um, Bacchus, would you cut off the oil? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. China will not do it. So if China I, doesn't do it, then we have no real pressure point on the North Koreans, so are, well, you, are you accepting the inevitability of no, the ICBM no, no, no. program? And no, um, uh, 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 Professor Kissinger, Dr. Kissinger, whoever Kissinger, has um, suggested uh, the beginnings that we explore kind of a, a bargain, a grand bargain, China, Japan, South Korea, and maybe including North Korea. I, I think there's no solution on the peninsula that does not include China. No, I agree. But how can we do it if the oil is not cut off? That's their role to drive them to the table. Well, they don't do it, and they won't do it. Why won't they do it? I think it's very simple. They won't because they don't. They, they, the Chinese have a neurologic fixation on, on the status quo and, and stability within China and also in the region. China, in many ways, are a very conservative government. They don't. If we, so, if we, so if, if I might, if I might. Okay. So you go to a Korean Peninsula. They're afraid if they cut off the oil, they, 
be, it causes instability in the peninsula. No, it wouldn't be towards the goal of like a long-term cutoff. It would just be, as Dr. Grant, uh, Dr. Allison is saying, towards the goal of just saying, you know, we're, we, as, as, as anyone who's ever been put in a headlock, it's just, you know, say uncle, right? It's not towards killing it, it's killing someone, it's just towards give up, okay? Stop this fight, let's just resolve it. So if we just did it on a temporary basis, would that be? Uh, I, I'm just giving my own personal opinion, yeah. it won't work. It won't work. It won't work. So, it, so let me ask this then, if we, if we move it. It won't work because they won't do it, or if they, wouldn't, if they did it, it would work? They won't, it won't work because they won't do it. Because they won't do it. So the option then becomes, unfortunately, we had a hearing in this room this morning on what uh, General McMaster has been talking about, um, which is a preventive nuclear war that the United States might have to engage in, which uh, would then have us using our military in order to strike the nuclear sites inside of North Korea. Uh, and then that gets back to Dr. Allison's uh, point uh, going back to 1950 where the Chinese then entered into the fight. So I'm just gonna read here something from the Global Times, which is a Chinese state-owned publication on August 10th of this year. This is what they, they articulated the government position, stated that if the United States and South Korea carry out strikes and try to overthrow the North Korean regime, China will prevent them from doing so but that China would make clear that if North Korea launches missiles that threatens U.S. soil first and the U.S. retaliates, China will stay neutral. So that then goes to the question of us attacking uh, the North Koreans and the Chinese saying, if that's the case, we're getting in because we're not going to allow the U.S. to establish a hegemony. Right, I, I, I know the editor of the Global Times. I've met many times with them. You gotta understand, and I'm sorry to mean it that way. No, no, please. The Global Times, uh, he's, he's provocative. He likes to put stuff out there. And he's somewhat speaking for the, the government, somewhat right. not. There's lots of different. So you don't think if we did strike in North Korea militarily that the Chinese would side? I think they would. They would, they, 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 they would, they would, they would um, find a way to get into the peninsula themselves so they can control the peninsula. They would, yeah. And do you agree with that? I do. Dr. Allison? Oh, sorry. I, I do, and I think that, therefore, to be clear, what I, I would, my, my prayer for the minor miracle would be that at the meetings, private meetings, between President Trump and Xi recently, they sat down and said, wait a minute, this guy could drag us into a war. We don't want a war. That would be crazy. So we need to figure out what are the terms that we can live with, that we can go to him and say simply, that's it. And I think that that's it would be you're getting a stop for a year of any ICBM tests and any nuclear weapons tests. That's not forever, but it gives us a year to work on, on the forever land, but for the year. And I think if, if the message from China and the U.S. was that's it, take it or leave it, and if the risk, or if there was a little squeezing of the oil to get started, I think it would get his attention, and I think it actually might succeed. But if we strike, are we falling, if we do strike, are we falling into the Thucydides trap? Well, I think if point? we strike, we should remember, that's a little bit like what happened in 1950. Right. And the sequence of events could end, crazy as it seems, right. with Americans and Chinese fighting each other. Yeah. Do you agree with that, Mr. Dr. Pillsbury? Uh, no, I don't. I think you've got a, your question has provoked a split among your three witnesses. 
I happen to agree with you, Senator Markey, that there was something in 2006 that the Chinese wouldn't quite agree with you. They say it was an accident. Somehow there was a one-day cutoff in the oil pipeline, uh, and somehow the six-party talks, as you said, resumed. I think it would be a mistake to strike nuclear sites and missile sites in North Korea without consultation with the Chinese. A Chinese professor has already written an op-ed piece mm -hmm. that the, China and the U.S. should initiate contingency planning about military strikes against North Korea. That's not the Global Times editor, Mr. Hu. That's a distinguished professor in Beijing. Other Chinese have been writing about the need to, to unload North Korea as an ally. So there's been a debate over the last two or three years about what to do about North Korea. I think we still have influence with them on steps that can be taken. And frankly, a, a sort of a total out of the blue pipeline cutoff is not the way to go. The discussion of military options with the Chinese is a first step. So if uh, I may. And there's a couple other steps involving uh, Chinese banks, uh, Chinese parts, the various ways that in an underground manner, China supports the weapons program in North Korea. These can be squeezed. There's another whole area I'm sure you know about, which is what you might call the royal family financing in Pyongyang. No, and again, Senator Gardner and I have introduced legislation. Banco Delta Macau, need I mention anything more? Yeah, no, we, we <laughs> dealing with the financing, dealing with the cryptocurrency, dealing with the drug money, dealing with the slave wages, dealing with all of it, but at the tip of the top of it, and 90% of it is the oil. So that's kind of the kind of the binary choice here that China has. In other words, you're saying that there's a distinguished professor saying that we should coordinate you know, a potential military strike at some point and that there should be coordination. And I guess what my perspective would be is that it would be much wiser to try to coordinate an economic strike against the North Koreans uh, that the Chinese understand is not meant to collapse the Kim regime, but only to put the pressure on that brings them to the table before we move to the second coordinated strategy that might include a military strike that the Chinese agree with. So it's just getting the sequencing correct so that we've exhausted the economic uh, pressure that I don't think we have touched uh, to the extent that we should thus far. Anyway, my time has expired, but I thank all of you so much for. Thank you, Senator Kane. Fascinating testimony. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, Dr. Allison, since you distributed your book, I've really been grappling with the Thucydides question. And thinking, thinking about it in the context of the United States' history at the beginning of the last century, so the U.S. economy became the largest economy in the world in the 1890s, and then the military probably became the most powerful when Roosevelt expanded the Navy, and certainly to the test in World War I. But another element of, of what became the American century was the United States grabbing onto a peacekeeping role. President Roosevelt brokered the end of the Russo-Japanese War and won the Nobel Peace Prize for that. And then President Wilson was an architect of the Treaty of Paris and the international institutions. So great nations are great peace builders. Um, it wasn't just military power and it wasn't just economic power. It was also a, a commitment to peace building. And, and China has an opportunity. You know, we've, I've now been in two hearings today where we're talking about the prospect of war on the Korean Peninsula. It's, I got a kid in the military. It's not a particularly pleasant day for me to have to go to two hearings about this. But, but I'm a believer in miracles, too. 
you know, North Korea wants some things. You know, they, they, it's not just a matter of what punishments can we put on them to cause them to give up uh, nuclear ambitions. They want some things. They've wanted a peace deal to end the Korean War rather than just an armistice. And they've, they've put that on the table before. Now, maybe that's just a fake request, but for a long time, they've wanted there to be a peace deal to end the Korean War so that they could have some guarantee that they would have a, an independent country and that the long-term goal wasn't a reunification and an absorption of their country into South Korea. China could be, in trying to broker some kind of a peace deal that would end North Korean nuclearization, would, would putting that issue on the table, a peace deal to end the Korean War that's now seven years old, should that be on the table? Um, I, I noticed China's reaction when the Nobels are given out to dissidents and artists that they don't like, they, they do not like that. You know, but, but for a Chinese government to win a Nobel Peace Prize for brokering a, a very difficult peace deal, just like President Roosevelt did in 1905, I mean, that, that would be a very different kind of a thing. So I'm in the miracle territory here. But I just want to say that, you know, thinking about North Korea just as what's the right punishment to put on them so they'll stop doing what they're doing. They're, you know, look, they're trying to get nuclear weapons. I mean, there is a, there is a, if a horrid rationality, there is some rationality. We want to protect the regime. Gaddafi gave up nuclear weapons and the regime went away. We want to protect the regime. Um, but there are some things they want, like a peace deal to end the war. Are those elements, if we think bigger and bigger picture about what the solution might be, might, might China and you all know, you're experts in China, and I'm not, but might China want to, as part of assuming this global leadership role, assume the leadership including in being a peacemaking nation, just like the United States did back at the turn of the 20th century? So thank you. I, I like the drift of, the, of the, your comments and the suggestion. I think the, it's we, first, uh, TR's role in brokering the uh, Jap Japanese a Russian agreement was the first Nobel Prize any American ever won, right. and actually in the Roosevelt Room, uh, that's one of the you know highlights uh, to to see this fact. So if she could become attracted to winning a Nobel Prize for dealing with the North Korean problem, I think that would be fantastic. So secondly, I think you're absolutely right that we have to think about what we can give North Korea as well as what we can get. At this moment, the thing that we need most from North Korea is that it stop testing ICBMs and nuclear weapons. Because if it doesn't, it's going to be into World One, that is, or Option One, which is a North Korea that can credibly threaten the American homeland. And President Trump has said that's absolutely not going to happen. So I think it's quite plausible that he attacks them to prevent that even though he knows that might even ultimately end in a war with China. I think partly he's also trying to help Xi Jinping understand that, that he's prepared to do that if that's his last resort. So now if we, if we imagine the, the, the minor miracle that I was praying for, Xi and Trump would each say, let's take one or two of our advisors, tell them to go off in a corner for a day or two, and come back with three ugly options. We're not going to like them. There only need to be better than what's currently now going to happen. And one of those options would undoubtedly be the U.S. gives some things that we don't want to give. So 
Is there some magic or something sacrosanct about how many people participate in each of our military exercises? I mean, I'm an old Defense Department type. We would say absolutely yes. We would never make an adaption at all, especially to prevent people from bad behavior they shouldn't have been doing in the first place. The answer is, of course, we can make changes. There was 32 and 32 and a half thousand. The previous time, there was 27,000. This minute, okay. Is there something sacrosanct about how many troops the U.S. has in South Korea? Is there something sacrosanct about how frequently we drive by or fly by? Do we need to have three carriers nearby or two? How many times? So there's a lot of things that we could be adapting and adjusting. If like we were like removing to, missiles from Turkey during the Cuban Missile Crisis months to take, after. To take a for example. And that was ugly. It was ugly, very ugly, but compared to the alternative. So I would say we would end up in the ugly zone on the particular item that you said, the peace treaty. I think there I, I slightly disagree. In the Kim's uh, uh, cosmology, they believe they are the legitimate rulers of the whole of Korea. They think what they're doing is taking back over the whole of Korea, and the peace treaty is a step in that picture mm -hmm. as they see it. So his idea mm -hmm. and his hope is he gets to be a nuclear weapon state, we lose interest or we back off from uh, Korea. Uh, pretty soon the South Koreans then are intimidated by him. One thing leads to the other. So I would, I would work on the short runs, run things in the, in now rather than the longer. If I can jump in with about 60 seconds, I tend to agree far more with Professor Allison than Senator Baucus because of the book I wrote, which I failed today to bring and pass out free copies of. I wrote my book. He only charges for them, yes. <laughs> well, and Professor Allison gave a generous blurb on the back cover, which I don't know if he regrets or not. I, no, I like that. I, like I tried to go through declassified documents to show that what you're raising, and what Professor Allison essentially is agreeing, has happened before because of the extraordinary high level of strategic cooperation between the United States and China, which often is not declassified for as long as 30 years. Some of it's quite dramatic. Lee Guan Yu himself, I tell the story in the book, came to a secret base in Thailand where the CIA and the Chinese CIA were cooperating with Singapore, Malaysia, and the Thais to provide weapons, maps, and money to guerrillas to kick the Vietnamese out of occupying Cambodia. Mm -hmm. That was only disclosed more than 30 years later. Mm -hmm. That's pretty sensitive cooperation. I have several pages on our working with them on Afghanistan. Very, very close relationship on solving strategic problems. Dr. Kissinger did not allow to be declassified until the last couple of years one of his most sensitive areas of cooperation with the Chinese, which began in 1973. So the precedent is there. I don't know if holding out a Nobel Peace Prize to President Xi Jinping could work, but it's the kind of thing that I suspect would appeal to his sense of greatness that came through in this three-and-a-half-hour uh, speech. Mm -hmm. So it could be, I don't claim ownership of the idea. This may be a new initiative you've announced today for how the U.S., China, North, I assume you mean North Korea and South Korea, would all four would share in the prize. But, of course, that involves Senator Baucus being wrong, that China would put a oil cut off on the table and start to do it. 
So we have to hope Senator Baucus is wrong in his forecast. I, I just mind on the, the basic point. I think it's a, it's a creative idea. Um, it's, I'm struck with um, one, a meeting between President Obama and President Xi when, when President Xi was visibly upset with Kim Jong-un. And I've never, one time I've heard him, Chief, be with an edge in his voice, and it, it, clearly frustrated that he doesn't have more influence over, over Kim. And I think that's the case. He, they just, there's a real tension there between Kim Jong-un and, and President Xi. Um, however, as, as has been noted, I th there's, there's more pride now. There's more feeling of, of potential greatness, if you will, on the part of, of President Xi. So I think that's an idea that he would find appealing. It's hard to know how that would play out because China is pretty conservative. That'd be a major step. It'd take a while for them to figure out how they do all that. That was not something they just announced without giving a lot of thought to it, running it through the, all the various you know, channels in, in China that, that would be necessary to, to touch with. Um, I, I think it's part of the approach, it's, along, it's analogous to the approach that must be taken, namely where we more seriously talk to China and in, a, in, a, in an honest way, in my experience, our discussions with China on this issue have been very superficial. They're just, it's like two ships passing the night. So for the ships to meet, not collide, but to meet, there has to be a very thoughtful approach here, and it means a lot of shuttle diplomacy, probably, a lot of back and forth, lots of officials to try to figure out, to try to develop more trust, more confidence, in finding an agreement, and I think it will include a lot of the points that have been mentioned here, and there are many, many more that we haven't discussed that should be out on the table, and, and after a while, if they're all explored with, in, in, in good faith, and I think there would be in China too in good faith, although we have to deal with the opacity of that government. They just, we, we, we're open, they're not. We have no choice but to try, because the all, other alternatives so far are not working. Namely, military, I think, is out of the question. We don't want that. A second, the sanctions aren't achieving the desired result so far. That's not, I don't see any evidence that's going to really change very much. So we have to keep the pressure up, keep talking about the sanctions, keep all of that. But at the same time, maybe backdoor, third party, um, to start talking a little more. And with China and with Japan, explore this bit in South Korea, then I think that... Uh, China might see, oh, gee, maybe there's an opportunity here where they can play a, a more responsible role, if you will. Um, it's like Bob Zillick's point about, I uh, forgot the phrase he used, but uh, the main point being to be responsible as you rise and have more influence. Thank you, Senator Kane. And I know Senator Markey has a, a, a couple of questions he'd like to ask. Let me just uh, uh, ask you this. If we are unsuccessful in uh, denuclearization of North Korea, uh, will South Korea and Japan ultimately be forced uh, to develop their own nuclear weapon program? Uh, make this, if you could, uh, a quick answer. Uh, Mr. Pillsbury? Uh, I don't think I want to acknowledge the idea of failure in advance, <laughs> so I would just decline to answer the question. It's, it's really not fair 
to, to acknowledge failure in advance. It's just a question of the political will on the part of allies and ourselves, how far are we willing to go with North Korea? Uh, it's already quite obvious all over Asia that the credibility is going up of an American military strike on North Korea. That's a really big change from a year ago when I, when all, I think probably all of us would go to conferences and everybody would say, well, everything's on the table, wink, wink, except the use of force. Yeah, let me shift the question then, because I would ask this, and I had a discussion with this with a Chinese official, uh, the CPC, um, earlier today. The, does the United States, and would China work with the United States, perhaps the United Nations is the right body to do this, uh, on a plan for what to do with the nuclear stockpile of Kim Jong-un should there be a, a denuclearization success? Uh, should we get that planned ahead of time with China? And would that then build enough trust to actually begin working together in a way that we could achieve that, sort of back into our goal of peaceful denuclearization? Uh, Professor Allison? Well, it's now become more complicated. It's, great. it's a great question. I think the, I cannot imagine the Kim Jong-un regime giving up its nuclear arsenal in any world, okay? So I, I understand that's our stated objective. I think it's, uh, I, I even have written once, a CVID, complete irreversible verifiable denuclearization is a complete irreversible verifiable delusion, okay? So it's not gonna happen. Not right after, I think it'll come right after the US and Israel, okay? Because Kim Jong-un has very good reason for wanting to have nuclear weapons. So that's number one. Number two, that does not mean that he has to have a capability to strike San Francisco or Los Angeles. He's already got 50 nuclear weapons. He's already got missiles that can deliver these weapons against South Korea and Japan. So I could imagine him stopping at this point for a time, and then we would see. So then the longer-term solution to this would be if you could imagine that regime changing, which it could do over time, or if you could imagine the Chinese coming to play a more dominant role in the, re in, in, in the regime or in the region. But I think stopping the, the bleeding right now seems to me to be the overwhelming question. The longer, the longer term problem, I think, will be very, very hard. D Dr. Pillsbury, how concerned are you about uh, President Moon, the new administration in South Korea, uh, and their approach toward North Korea? Uh, and perhaps even uh, their relationships with China that could result in a softening of an approach toward North Korea and uh, a distancing of the United States? I'm going to Seoul tonight to see the President Moon's team. He's got a campaign advisor who's published a lot about North Korea. Um, President Moon seems to have come around quite a bit. His, some of his campaign uh, supporters are in tears. They're quite angry at him as well. Um, Frankly, the North Korean military watches the South Korean president's attitude very closely. So we've made a lot of progress, it seems to me, in influencing the North Korean military to start thinking differently, uh, as President Trump said in his speech to the South Korean Assembly, start thinking of nuclear weapons as dangerous to them, as attracting attack, as opposed to guarantors of the regime. The military does not seem to have taken the initiative in the original uh, decision to develop nuclear weapons. It seems to have been more of a Kim family uh, pledge to the military. You keep the Kim family in power and we'll deliver nuclear weapons. We'll get the resources, the money, 
all the ingredients needed. Uh, so changing the North Korean military's attitude seems to me is part of the game right now. And President Moon's uh, cautionary approach st has started to include the use of force. He doesn't want it, it's his last resort, but he's changed from his campaign pledges. That to me is quite significant. And the Chinese have told us in uh, academic settings that the North Korean military is the real power in that country other than the royal Kim family itself. So that is why thinking about the three aircraft carriers concentrating so much power in one place, this is the kind of thing military leaders pay attention to. It's their belief in the credibility of what President Trump is saying that it seems to me everything hangs on. And some of the sanctions, not the oil pipeline, not the banks, but some of the sanctions can also affect the North Korean military. And this is an area where it seems to me the Chinese and think tank channels have been supportive. They think the North Korean military is the part of the solution, maybe even the solution. Thank you. And I know we haven't even gotten into issues of South China Sea and other issues uh, that could go on for a long time, Senator Markey. Yeah, thank you so much. So I want to come back to uh, Senator Baucus because you raised a very interesting kind of dichotomy here where there, as the Chinese move from the era of the emperor to the era of the party, and what you said was that, um, that uh, don't worry about human rights is what she says because uh, we're going to take care of the people. And so I think it would be helpful for us to understand then, are they just turning a, a deaf ear to anything that we say about human rights, that it has no impact on them whatsoever, that it's not really in, uh, in our interest to kind of waste capital on an issue where there will be no progress because we are gonna take care of the people, as you said, is just gonna be the continued mantra that they utter to any U.S. ambassador or congressional delegation no, think, which no, is I visiting think, them. Yeah, no, I think it's important to talk about human rights. Um, it's, it's, it's a universal value um, that all people understand. You know, it's, it's, um, it's human dignity. It is so essential, basically, to life. Um, I think we should talk, we should press uh, protection human rights but we're only going to get so far. But we still should protect. We still still should continue to, to advocate the value of human rights, even with China. So, do you agree with that, Dr. Pillsbury? That they are unlikely to give us um, an answer or, or respond to our pressure, our interests, but that we should raise them uh, regardless. I agree in principle, but they've been extraordinarily sensitive to human rights issues that are raised at the presidential level about specific individuals. And so I was very pleased at this tremendous bipartisan cooperation going way back. It was Claiborne Pell, Joe Biden, Jesse Helms, and Orrin Hatch, if you can imagine such a combination, who supported the legislation to create Radio Free Asia and have human rights uh, dissidents actually read their stories and address the issue and then have phone-in telephone calls from China of people talking about specific human rights cases and violations. That, by the way, was the recipient of this legislation, uh, President H.W. Bush and his assistant secretary of the time, Richard Solomon, told us they would veto it. 
They did not want Radio Free Asia. They didn't want broadcasts in Mandarin on human rights issues going into China. Uh, they were overcome. It passed. It's one of our best programs. And it's one of many ways that human rights issues can be brought up in addition to diplomatic dialogue. And as I say the, in my testimony, the National Endowment for Democracy, the funds for democracy promotion, both at USAID and at state, uh, have a focus already on Chinese democracy and human rights. More can be done. But that's an area for a foreign relations committee hearing, frankly. Okay, thank you. So if I can come back to you again, um, Max, it, the, the point that um, Dr. Pillsbury raised earlier about these programs to transfer U.S. technologies, U.S. innovation to China and that it's a legal requirement that we do so, did you come across that while you were there in terms of their insistence to the U.S. government that there be a facilitation of that type of transfer? Uh, in fact, the opposite is just the case. Um, no, they kept complaining to us about um, <clears throat> our restrictions of technology transfer to China. I did not ever hear anybody in China advocate, uh, gee, you Americans should stick with the agreements that you have to transfer technology. And as you also know, they're very clever. Um, with the Snowden revelations, China passed a lot of national security statutes to protect their country from being from, from espionage. But at the same time, they used that as an opportunity to, to set up dis discriminatory barriers against U.S. technology firms um, selling equipment in, in China um, in order to build up their own industry mm -hmm. at um, foreign expense. And it's, uh, they're pretty successful with it. So from my perspective, all I heard was China complaining, frankly, that the <clears throat> that, uh, U.S. Is, is, is not allowing the technology transfer that they like. When, under, the, uh, under the U.S. Export Control Act. Yeah, back in uh, mm. 1998, I traveled with uh, Senator Baucus, John Dingell, and uh, uh, Jay Rockefeller as the congressional right. delegation with President Clinton on Air Force One for 10 days. We were in China, China we were in uh, Shanghai, and Xi'an, and Hong Kong, and Beijing. And I just went back in the last week of August, uh, first to go up to the Yalu River, the border between Dan Dong and uh, uh, North Korea, the uh, transfer of uh, the goods. The bridge of no return. Yep, yeah, the bridge. <laughs> and uh, but then I went over to Shanghai, and you are right, Max. It, it was non-recognizable just from 1998, right. just completely, you know, built up in a way that uh, uh, that was non-recognizable from that city that I visited back then. So, um, so it's it's a um, you know, it was uh, it was eye-opening then to see it on the rise, but uh, uh, but now it's just absolutely incredible. And, um, uh, and and maybe I would just ask this one final question because we, we had a hearing, and maybe one of you knows the answer to this. But we had a hearing, and we had the uh, the dean of the University of Maryland uh, Graduate School uh, testify, um, Robert Orr. So he testified here about the uh, the global green grid which China is now proposing, uh, uh, first starting with it going into the adjoining countries uh, to uh, China, but then expanding beyond that, which is just a high concept uh, in terms of their insinuation of their government planning into kind of the fundamental uh, part of uh, each economy, the grid. 
but using renewable energy. So can any of you speak to that question, if you're familiar with it at all? I'm not familiar, but I, it's, it just amazes me. We live in a time there's so many ideas, and some of them are very grand, and one or two are going to come to pass. It's just fascinating with all the development technologies, et cetera. I know that um, that uh, head of SoftBank, uh, Masayoshi-san, has a similar concept, not green, but um, conventional network grid uh, for the region. But I also smile a little bit because <clears throat> I visited one province there, and it's, it's lots of solar panels, lots of wind power. And the party secretary of the province was so happy, but he was unhappy too. Why? Because um, the coal industry <clears throat> had such a near lock on the purchase of power that they, the coal industry, were still able to, to preempt renewables. That is, renewable was so interruptible that they could, they, the province could not sell enough of their wind power uh, to the grid as they really wanted to. It's, so it's going to take time. I, I hear a lot about the, renew, the green renewable, and it's be great if it develops, but I just realistically, it's, it's, it's slow. <clears throat> Can I jump in for a second? It comes out of an initiative that I praise in my book, The 100-Year Marathon. It dates back to the Reagan administration, where the United States decided, you know, we have an environmental protection agency. Some people don't like it. Some people do. We need to create one in China. And there was an outreach to find partners. They acknowledge us sometimes in speeches. But the shift of China away from coal, away from cars, a whole series of uh, green initiatives date to this group of people who were identified. Later, they became, in one case, minister. They give cabinet rank to their EPA now. And it's an example of an American success story, which George Schultz talks about in terms of empowering or building the capacity inside China sometimes is the problem. They will agree with us rhetorically on something, but they can't actually do it. it something similar happened in the non-proliferation area. They would say, yes, you know, we're against nuclear proliferation, we're against exporting advanced weapons, but we knew they couldn't keep track of what they were doing. So U.S. money, the U.S. embassy, helped them create an export enforcement mm -hmm. system. This is way back before Ambassador Baucus. But we've gone a little bit too far in so much cooperation that, frankly, I don't think was brought to the attention of the ambassador. It's so routine now. I saw a briefing last year, National Science Foundation, transferring advanced manufacturing techniques to the Chinese Ministry of Science and Technology. It's done in a routine way because of all these agreements, so nobody would bother the ambassador, whereas he would, he would definitely hear from the Chinese about you're not selling us high-tech equipment and what about this restriction. That's what I'm calling for a hearing on, all this uh, cooperation. Okay, great. What an all-star panel. Yeah, thanks. If I might just, 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 you got to take your hat off to China too in, in, in renewables in the sense that China will have more electric vehicles produced than any other country soon. And they're electrifying so many of their cities with EVs. And you, when you're in Beijing, it's, they're not com combustible you know, scooters, they're all electric. It's, um, it's, it's stunning. Okay, they've, they've got a, they have ideas they think they need to pursue, and they tend to be ideas of the future, getting ahead of the game. Thank you. Thank you to all of you for your time and testimony today. I truly appreciate the opportunity to have this 
important dialogue and conversation as we inform our legislative and work toward our legislative goal of uh, creating long-term policies, uh, United States toward Asia. Uh, for the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, including for members to submit questions for the record. Again, your homework assignment, if you could return those as quickly as possible. Uh, the answers to those questions, I would greatly appreciate it. With the thanks of the committee, this hearing is now adjourned.